when the people making decisions about D and D are not really D and D gamers, things get complicated. Welcome to the Red Caps Podcast, a podcast where we dip our caps into the blood of our listeners and we ramble on about old school games. I am back from vacation, and in today's episode, I'm going to sit down with Ben Riggs, the author of the D&D history book, Slaying the Dragon, A Secret History of Dungeons and Dragons. It's a book that tells the story of TSR basically from the time of Gygax's exit until TSR is finally gone and Wizards of the Coast has acquired them. It was a lot of fun chatting with Ben. It was interesting having a conversation with an, uh, an author that I had just finished. Uh, we had this conversation only a couple of weeks after I finished listening to his book on audiobook. And of course, his audiobook is done by somebody other than himself. So it was odd listening to a book that was all in first person uh, and then talking to that same person and being a different voice. It was an interesting experience. But we had a lot of fun chatting. Uh, there's a couple of technical glitches in the interview, uh, a couple of points where Ben's audio and video kind of cut out during there. Um, but just bear with it. It will flow right through. There's, there are only momentary uh, momentary interruptions. Um, but stay with it. It's a really fun chat, and I hope you enjoy. So since no mortal can outrun a red cap, I suggest you sit back, listen, and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, I am joined by Ben Riggs, the author of Slaying the Dragon, A Secret History of Dungeons and Dragons. How are you doing today? I'm glad to be here. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I finished your book uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, two or three weeks ago. Um, I listened to the to the audiobook version, which was fantastic. For anybody who has not read the book, though, the name does kind of give a pretty good indication what it's all about. But what's your elevator pitch for what the book is? Um, I would tell you it is about the the rise and fall of TSR and the management decisions that led to its death. Um, and it's a story that, you know, if you lived through the 90s, you, you, you think you know. Uh, and then I went, went and started asking questions. And I'm like, oh, I, I had no idea. I, I, I didn't know this story at all. I thought I knew exactly what happened. And I did not. Uh, and that led to the writing of the book. Yeah, it was it was really interesting to me. Also, the the shift of what I thought the narrative was for that versus what it ended up being from from your book. Um, like I said, I listened to the audiobook. Sean Patrick Hopkins did the narration on it. So, but before I went to sit down and talk with you, all I had was his his voice uh, in a first person point of view from you going on. Uh, so I, I was worried it was going to be a big shock going from listening to <laughs> listening to you speak through his voice. Uh, to coming and talking to you here, but with the whole publishing of a book and, and going for the audio book and everything, what was that process like for you? Is is that do you get the do you get a say in who narrates the book? Did you have to have auditions and you got to pick them, or did your publisher go, "This is who is doing it. Have fun." They they clearly like to like to uh, let us think that we have some sort of input and control over the production process. They were like, "What would you like on the cover?" I'm like agonized for a week here are three suggestions and of course none of them came to to fruition that's fine um <laughs> they gave me two uh voice actors to choose from and again they were both quite good uh, but uh the other gentleman was an australian whose american accent was a california accent and i'm like oh i can't no we, this i can't have a california accent in a wisconsin story it's just not going to fly. Um, so I, I went with uh, 
Sean, the, the gentleman that you heard. Um, so at least that was the audiobook process. Do you do you with the nittier, grittier production story? Sure. So I'm always interested to hear how this works. This is a this is a part of of I read a lot of books, or actually I should say I listen to a lot of books now because I do much more than via audio. But I, I I never know what the other side of that is. So I'm interested in, in hearing that, of course. I, I keep saying it was uh, 17 years of failure before I got my first book published. Um, I think that's probably pretty accurate. Um, it was probably 17 years ago that I really started taking writing seriously and, and wrote my first novel and, and tried to get it published. Um, after about 12 years of failing at that, I tried nonfiction and I uh, wrote for Deacon Sundry for a few years. Pardon me. That led to this book. Um, because Geek and Sundry was like, someone should write a story about how Wizards of the Coast didn't always make D&D. &D. And I'm like, well, I'm the guy in Wisconsin. Let me do it. And they did. Um, and again, the story I started to get from people was not the story I thought. Uh, you know, there uh, bad contract deals, uh, a lot of self-inflicted wounds, um, kind of wasting money was not what I was expecting to hear. So I was like, okay, uh, my editor couldn't, wouldn't let me get it all in my article for Geek and Sundry. So I'm like, I'll write a 10,000 word PDF and I will uh, kickstart that. Well, that, that 10,000 word PDF grew until it was 100,000 words. <laughs> and at that point, I was encouraged by friends in the industry to try and get it published by a major publisher. And I'm like, I, I, I just can't see it. Like, I can't imagine a major publisher agreeing to publish this. It's, it just seems too niche. Um, so then there were two years of rejections from, uh, from agents. And at the end of that time, I'm like, you know, whatever, I'll either self-publish it or a gaming company will publish it and that's how it'll get out there. It'll be fine. That's what I was thinking. Then uh, Andrews McNeil, which recently divested itself of all role-playing game publishing, expressed interest. And I was like, extreme interest. Like, they sent me a contract. Um, and I'm like... Look, whatever I need an agent for, I think I just did 90% of the work. I've got an offer on the table. I just need an agent to let me know if this contract is terrible. You you, you take whatever cut you get of this uh, choice. This is money on the table. Um, and it was still like an, another week before I could get uh, an agent. I actually had a friend's agent agree to talk to me and tell me over the course of 45 minutes why he would not represent me, even with an offer on the table. So I, I finally got an agent, and then uh, Andrews McNeil withdrew their uh, withdrew their offer. <laughs> oh, um, but I, you know, I right before that point, I was like, you know, am I am I cursed? Do I smell? Like, you know, what what is it? Like, you know, who do you have to bribe to get a, a literary agent in this world? Um, and my agent is now uh, Susan Velasquez of the Jabberwocky Literary Agency, and I'm, I'm pleased to death with her. Um, and it was about three months after this that COVID hit. And I was like, oh, okay. Who knows what's going to happen now? Um, 
you know, like I, 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 I'm glad I have an agent, but with COVID going on, is there any chance that this thing is actually going to sell? Um, and then in August of 2020, my agent got us a meeting with St. Martin's Press, which is owned by Macmillan. Um, and uh, Peter Wolverton, an editor there, was like, this is exactly the kind of book we're looking for. We're looking for something to tap into the D&D market because we think it's growing. Uh, and, and my book was it. And uh, two years of, of editing later, it, it came out. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know if people find that interesting or not. But uh, I feel like what so do you many think? times. Go ahead. Sorry. No, so, say, so what do you think the your total time from Geek and Sundry saying, hey, somebody should write this history, and you starting to do your, your research until you get a your first proof in your hand, uh, which, I, I, which I assume must be really awesome whenever you get that first proof from the publisher of, of your book. What do you think the timeline of that was? I'm going to say four years. Um, if you let me do a little clicking, I can find out right now. Um, so four years, that, that's actually shorter than what I would have thought, because I, I hear of, of people who are writing uh, writing novels or, or, or going down that route, and they might be four years just on getting the, you know, and that's probably partially due to a motivation or a procrastination or a writer's block type scenario, but um, just getting through the initial first draft of it can take that long. You know, uh, I'll tell you, I would have thought it was longer, actually. Like, I think I usually sit, tell people five years, but now that we're sitting here and talking about it, I'm pretty sure it was the autumn of 2017 that I was assigned that article. And the book came out in July of uh, 2022. So it'd be just a little under five years total from starting to publication. Um, and uh, unless I'm, again, unless I'm misremembering and I started in 2016, but I'm pretty sure it was 2017 that I got to sign the article. Um, it was a, uh, like, <laughs> usually I could, I could write a novel in a year and then edit it in another six months and then start sending it out. So it was like an 18 month turnaround for a novel. And it was like twice as long to get a manuscript on this. So it felt like a long time to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, the story of the book, um, like you said, is, is the rise and fall of TSR and the story that, that we, that we thought we knew, but we didn't really know. And often that story is especially, so I'm, I'm a, the podcast and, and the background I'm coming into this from is, is from like an old school gaming. Uh, you know, I, I traditionally play games that are more from the TSR era. Um, you know, that's the, that style of gaming is what I'm into. And the, the common thought process or the common uh, story that gets told, you know, is of the hero, uh, St. Gary of Gygax, and the evil villain Lorraine Williams, who destroyed everything, uh, with other cast of characters all mixed in around there, and that's kind of the story that's always told. But whenever you read through the book, as well as you know, there's there's several other great D and D history books out there as well um, that, that folks should be looking at. But when you're looking at this particular story of this timeline, you you kind of get a different view of both of those characters and. In your book, the the supporting cast definitely gets elevated up to being the, the main talking points in there. But the but the two people that get often talked about, you know, Gary gets gets laid out for what he honestly is, which is kind of an unreliable narrator most of the time. A, a person who's there, there's a different Gary from the early '70s to the '80s to to later on as time goes on. Um, and Lorraine Williams, 
the the evil witch hat that she may be wearing isn't necessarily always firmly on that head is there if you had to sum it up real really short in terms of you know what somebody's perception of this might be versus what the perceived reality or what you're what the reality is that you've seen from it where does it change like what was the biggest change for you i guess um i, I would say it's the change from uh <laughs> myth to reality perhaps because it's very easy to tell the story of like gary was good lorraine williams was bad and lorraine because she was bad stole the company from gary who was good and she drove it into the ground um and um again i would say i take a, a more nuanced view i also have the advantage of uh writing after a lot of people already did kind of the definitive work on gary gygax so you know i like the, the the Lorraine Williams era is kind of kind of mine. Uh, no one yet is is really in those waters with me. Um, but there are numerous uh, excellent historians working on Gary, um, and the the picture that emerges from them, especially John Peterson, is of a brilliant but Machiavellian and deeply insecure man. Um, you know, he, he wants to be in charge. He wants to have control. Uh, and he made a really good game. Uh, but despite what he said, it does not mean he is a good businessman. And in his telling later on in life, he's like, you know, uh, my, my partner screwed me essentially. Um, and yet if you go back and look, uh, he clearly knew everything his partners were, were doing because he talked about it in the wall street journal. Um, you know, <laughs> if he thought what they were doing was dumb. Why didn't he have someone else take that uh, take that interview? Um, so again, Gary late in life would have said his partners messed up TSR, which allowed Lorraine Williams to steal it from him in in backroom shenanigans. Um, in truth, he certainly knew about most of the bad things and dumb things going on at TSR. Uh, he had a number of bad and dumb things that he himself were, was responsible for, like renting an unnecessarily large and expensive mansion in the Hollywood Hills. Um, <laughs> like fine. If you're going to go West and try and uh, break into the, to the uh, uh, mainstream media, but uh, get a cheap place, you know, you don't need to rent a mansion where you can see both the ocean and the mountains. Um, and uh, again, he, he painted Lorraine Williams as both stupid and yet smart enough to, to steal the company from him. Um, and the truth is, Lorraine Williams was able to buy a multi-million dollar company for probably something like, oh gosh, $500,000, $250,000. John Peterson, again, has the exact number in Game Wizards. But the reason that she was able to get enough shares to control the company uh, for that price is because it was probably going to go out of business. It was uh, in debt up to its eyeballs. The staff had been uh, undergone round after round after round of firings. Um, the the idea that like she just um, took this healthy company and killed it is wrong. She took a sick company, uh, she got it back up on its feet and got it to walk for another twelve years before. Yes, you know, bad decisions bad decisions she made did lead uh, to its death. Um, but again, to to say simply that. Uh, Lorraine bad, 
Gary Good is is really simplistic, especially when you consider that that the the Williams era really is the silver age of D and D. Um, so, something special went on there. The, the, the creation of all those different worlds, uh, worlds that we still pine for today, and hopefully, is Wizards going to finally put out Dragonlance? Oh, they are! Oh my God, this is amazing. Are we going to get Dark Sun before Fifth Edition ends? I don't know. Um, but uh, and, and again, they, they've they've tried to introduce new settings with Fifth Edition, but back in the '90s, you'd get the setting, you would get a series of adventures. You'd probably get a series of novels uh, and, and that kind of support. They just don't do it anymore. Um, so it really was a special era to live through. Um, I mean, Dark Sun, you know, it gets support akin to what Star Wars kind of gets today in terms of, of novelizations and things like that. And it's a minor game world from TSR. Again, you have tens of thousands of people to this day that are still dedicated to Dark Sun. I had a guy email me yesterday asking if I just knew of a history of Dark Sun anywhere because he was so interested in reading a history of Dark Sun. So you also have to put that on the Williams side of the ledger, uh, that she allowed the creation of all these game worlds. Now, also, probably the creation of all those game worlds was a financial disaster for the company and partly drove it into the ground. It's probably one of the reasons that the company died. It's also why you really never see companies do this anymore. Like I, it's, it's interesting. Oh, no, it's it's interesting you say that because I had this down as, as one of the key takeaways from, from your book for me. Because I one thing I've been and maybe maybe this puts me in in the Williams camp. One of the things I've been trumpeting for ages in the OSR space is that people just keep putting out rule sets after rule sets after rule sets, and I'm. I, I've started to take the the uh, viewpoint of I'm done buying rules. I say that, but I buy freaking everything that comes out. It's ridiculous. But anyway, I, I, I say I'm I'm done buying rules. I want people to put out more more settings. Like where are all the cool settings? Where if we live in an age where anybody can publish anything so easily, and there are so many creative and talented people, why isn't there a new Dark Sun? Why isn't there these things coming out all the time? Um, and maybe after I read, after I was I was going through your book, and and you got to that part where you're like, you know, maybe the settings are what actually sunk all this. I was like, ooh, maybe that's why Necrotic Gnome and them aren't, you know, or why other companies aren't pumping out a bunch of settings is because for those same reasons. But from a from a fan or a consumer perspective, I, I view those settings uh, completely differently. I view it as like, oh, give me more of those. But I can completely see where you're coming from from in terms of like looking at the numbers, I don't know if that's a case of the market at that point. Would those market conditions still apply today? But um, I, I can I can see where you're coming from with the with the data that you had there. I I would also say so. This is a pet theory that I'm trying to refine and have not succeeded yet. Role playing games seem to go through some sort of a life cycle where there's an early and vital period where you can create things and add things to the game, and then eventually it ossifies and calcifies, and the game becomes this set thing in people's minds, and it becomes very hard to, to make radical alterations to it. Um, and I feel like the TSR era was the end of the creative period for D&D. &D. And, you know, like, again, you only got one new setting with third edition, Eberron. And again, fifth edition, they've tried new things, but it's always just one book. Just one book, yeah. and that's it. Um, and like when I think about OSR, like 
you're right, like Dungeon Crawl Classics occasionally put something out. Um, but again, it's usually a one-off and then that's it, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, depending on who you're talking to in the OSR space, you'll have people who, who will claim whether or not Dungeon Crawl, Crawl Classics even is an OSR game, right? Yeah. Or is this one, is that one? But yeah, the, the number of settings is is much smaller and they're often tied to the rule set specifically. So you look at something like Hyperborea, um, really great rule set, basically, you know, a, a reskin 2E or 1E, um, but very flavorable from its, from its uh, setting. And you won't, you won't see a different setting come out for that game um, just because it's, it's so tied into what it is. Um, and even on uh, you take, what is arguably probably the most popular OSR game right now being old school essentials um, until Gavin finally goes and publishes uh, Dolmenwood here uh, sometime in the next year or two. Uh, your, your settings are just the TSR settings. There is no, there's nobody coming out with additional settings for that. So that was always one of my, my uh, little, you know, flags. People make more settings and I've talked to like folks like Ed Greenwood about it and stuff about why he doesn't think there's more, why there isn't like a, a you know, open source crowd created Harn world or something along those lines. Um, and yeah, it's, it's an interesting discussion, but I want to circle back to Lorraine for a minute, because like I said, a lot of people villainize who she is and you, you, I think handled it very fairly. Like you were very open about, you know, the things that she did good and, and, and what you think uh, may lay at her, at her feet. Um, and unfortunately she wasn't able to, speak with you or was unwilling to speak with you for the book, which I think would have been a huge change in how the whole thing was, was perceived. But since the books come out, cause I'm sure whenever you first reached out to her, she, she's probably gotten over the decades, just tons of D and D fans that are just completely biased against her from the get go. It's almost a poison pill before she even sits down and talk to them. But after your book has come out, I don't know if you've heard from her. Has she read the, like, do you know if she's read the book or has there been any, so communication well, where maybe you might be able to have an interview or, or an honest discussion now after she sees where you're coming from. I doubt it. Um, I, I, again, like to my mind, she, oh gosh, she's got to be, you know, in her seventies somewhere now, probably um, maybe only her sixties, but still she's very wealthy. Um, and, and also again, she, she never actually cared about any of this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that was always kind of the thing with her was that you know she wasn't a gamer to begin with, so yeah. maybe, uh, yeah, maybe maybe she, this is just a chapter of her life where there's yeah there was a business ahead. But I, I'd be interested to know if she has the same nostalgic for it that everybody kind of else does. Like, yeah, like her brother wrote a very nice review of it on Amazon. I'm like, okay, that's good. Like, you know, if if her brother read it and liked it enough that he goes and reviews it on Amazon that would seem to indicate that at least at family dinners, if they ever see each other, he's like, Hey, maybe you should have considered doing this thing. Um, <laughs> but again, I also want to talk to her extensively about what I assume to be the greatest failure of her life. Um, I, yeah. I could be wrong, but um, you know, her, her company failed. She had to sell it to someone she perceived as an enemy. Um, and uh it probably became clear to her afterwards that many of the people that she might have considered friends just listened to her because she was the boss and actually wanted nothing to do with her, which uh, 
I, I don't know what your experience is with uh, wealthy, rich bosses, but again, they seem to really confuse sometimes employees with friends um, and struggle to have actual meaningful relationships. And I wouldn't surprise me if Lorraine was in that camp. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm certainly not writing it off. Maybe if I get a really good review somewhere, I'll send it to her sometime because um, I have her email address, but I'm, I don't want to bug her. Um, but uh, I would certainly love, I'd love that interview. If she, assuming she's in Chicago, which I think she is, I'd love to drive down uh, and uh, talk to her for a couple hours and see what I can get out of her. I mean, on, on, for, for as much of a failure as it was, at least she managed to walk away still holding on to Buck Rogers, right? So, <laughs> uh, or so, that salt in the wound there, Kevin. <laughs> um, so the, one of the things I found interesting, just looking things up on you too, and of other interviews I've done with a bunch of other folks in the RPG space, and I was wondering if you saw the same correlation as all the different interviews that you were doing, is that there seems to be a big correlation between people who are in the education field teachers or educators of some sort and those who get heavily involved in the RPG scene, RPG scene. I've noticed that just from the interviews I've been doing on the podcast, you yourself were a teacher at some point as you're going through the interviews. Did you find that as well? That there was like a, did you find a, a, a large amount of people from academia or is that just me pulling up a, a correlation that maybe doesn't actually exist? I mean, I think there's a correlation there, but I, I, not so much on the professional side. Um, at least I should say for TSR back in the day, because every, everyone I interviewed pretty much was a game designer. There were a few people that were uh, in teaching. Oh, I think we may have just lost Ben. His audio has gone here. Uh -oh. Check oh. one, two, one, two, check one, two, one, two. Can you hear me? Yep. You just came back. Okay. Weird. Um, so back in, I think that like now there's probably a correlation between teaching and gaming just because teachers at least have the summers and have some regular breaks. Uh, and that certainly helps. Um, I also find there's a lot of uh, computer people in the role playing game uh, space because, you know, they, they seem to have at least money <laughs> so they can take some time off, go to Gen Con, throw money at the hobby, things like that. Um, so yeah, I do think that um, you know it, it's it is funny that the hobby kind of started as a uh, hobby for smart poor people, um, and it still can be a hobby for for smart poor people, specifically smart poor people uh, far from major metropolitan centers. Um, I don't know how you feel an hour outside of of Toronto. Are you I, like... I I grew up in a in the smallest, most isolated spot that you could think of. So I, I grew up very far away from where I live now. Uh, okay. So I would fall into the the uh, far away from a major urban center yeah. <laughs> standpoint. Were you, were you in Ontario? No, I lived on the far east coast of Canada in a little tiny province called Prince Edward Island. It's a population. Oh yeah, I've been there. Oh, have you been there? Okay, oh, yeah. So it's a tiny spot. Um, that's where I grew up, yeah. and. Uh, very much different from Toronto. <laughs> in, oh uh, shoot, what's the name of the city? Um, Charlottetown? Yeah, in Charlottetown or no? Uh, no, in the other city on the, on the island. Yeah. Somerset. There's only two, and they're barely cities for anybody who doesn't know. Oh, Charlottetown is so nice. They oh. are. They're, they're beautiful. It's fantastic. I, I go back for uh, about a month or so every year. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a very different pace of life uh, as opposed to if you live anywhere else, uh, probably in Canada, really. Yeah, now... But, 
I, I'm a like a, a thing I stick to is um, like the gaming stores in Milwaukee, Wisconsin are better than the gaming stores in New York City or Los Angeles, California. I, I mean, you know, we have like three or four, and all of them are superior to every game store in New York City and Los Angeles, California. Perhaps the only things that you can point to and be like, yeah, we do that better <laughs> than New York and Cali. Because um, again, there's just something about uh, you know being far away from what seems to be the blinding pulse of culture. You know, it's the weekend, and maybe there's just not much to do. So, well, you know what you can do? You can play D and D. That is what you can do with your mind uh, and all this free time you have as a kid. Um, so, I, I, it is kind of funny to think that um, now having money in the hobby is a bit of an advantage but eh, maybe not when you're growing up now i'm rambling i'm sorry i'll stop oh no no worries um i was gonna say the the other thing i found as i've been doing interviews here with folks in the, in the rpg space is how willing it is for everybody to talk um i've very rarely had somebody come back and say no i, I don't want to do an interview everybody seems to be pretty pretty eager to talk about you know, the things that they enjoy, which I mean, you would expect, right? People want to talk about the stuff that they like. Did you find that as you're doing, trying to source people for Lorraine aside, but trying to find people from the TSR era, or was there some resistance due to maybe the the hard feelings about how things went down at that point? Or, or were most people very happy to sit down and give you their time? Most people were pretty eager to talk because the the story they had to tell was, I was brilliant and my boss effed it all up. <laughs> and, and really, who who does not love telling that story? Um, True. And but uh, I will say, you know, I've begun working on a book two, and that is already a, a much different process. Um, <clears throat> like I'll interview people, and most of them I can kind of see editing themselves as they talk to me. You know, uh, in book one, I'd be like, "Tell me about." the creation of uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons 2nd Edition. And boom, out comes a, a story. Um, and this time it's like, okay, tell me about 4th Edition. Long pause. Let's <laughs> not going to get me in trouble. Um, so, you know, I'm working on a volume 2, but I am concerned that uh, maybe the, uh, the, the old man is not going to be there. Yeah, maybe. Because when people talk to me for book 1, it was, I'm just some journalist who's theoretically writing a thing. Um, but now it's like, oh, this is probably going to be in Barnes and Noble at some point. So uh, what am I going to say here? What am I going to say? Right. Um, it could also just be that, you know, I've moved forward in time a little bit from talking about things in the 80s and 90s to the uh, to the noughties. And uh, it's just sooner. So people might have conflicted feelings about talking about those things. But um, that's the big change I saw in interviews is from, from book one to book two, things seem to have changed. And as you're getting these stories, so you're getting tons of little antidotes, you know, so I'm sure you had to do a certain amount of, is that reality or is that just your your nostalgia or, or your, you know, whatever colored glasses uh, view of what happened, but were there stories that really shocked you that came out of there? Because when I went through the the settings, like I mentioned, was, was one that I went, oh, wow, like that kind of, change my view on things a little bit um i i kind of had a little bit of a tear in my eye as you were talking about the storage locker that uh got basically trashed with probably priceless artifacts sitting in there um and of course the 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 publisher deal 
which I had never heard of until I until I listened to the book. Um, but outside of say those things, which everybody should go and listen to the book or read the book for those things is just on their own. But were there other like really cool stories that you had never heard of or or just shocked you or changed your perception of things? Um, I was shocked that they turned down the chance to do a Lord of the Rings role playing game. Um, and it, again, like that's very hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, like in 1991, 1992, Lord of the Rings is not what it was, not what it is today. Right. Um, but it would have been really cool to see what they would have done with that. And I, again, it was, I got to talk to John Ratliff, who actually flew to England and talked to Christopher Tolkien about this. And he kind of told me the whole story. Uh, that really shocked me. Also, uh, TSR West blew my oh, comic book. Yeah, sorry, not the comic books. Yeah. They, were, they were comic modules. Or yeah. Is that how they were labeled? Yeah, so <laughs> it was the early 90s and comic book companies were hot and TSR was like, let's start a comic book company. So they tried to start a comic book company in Los Angeles, California. And I had no idea um, that they did this. It, uh, I, my editor really questioned, do we really need this in here? And I'm like, no one knows this story. And he's like, but does it really have to do with how they failed? And I'm like, well, it lost them money. And again, I, I, I just had no idea that they went all in on making comic books, that there was like uh, a year where TSR published like six, seven comic book lines. Yeah, um, actually, I have to jump on eBay at some point and take a look, see if any of these exist. Cause I, I'd be interested to, to grab, cause I've never, I've never seen them even mentioned on like P I've, you, you'll see like troves of old PDFs, like of Dungeon Magazine and what have you, uh, of that era. I've never seen one of these comic books. I don't think, or comic yeah. modules. <laughs> they're, they're they are not cheap. Rather, they are cheap. They are they're cheap and they are not hard to find because no, nobody really wants them. So you can fifty bucks will probably get you get you the entire line. Um, <laughs> again, I, th I think I spent like twenty five, and I got. I was like, I, I think I bought the first two or three of everything. And then uh, maybe all of one or two entire lines, but uh, some of them were good, some of them were terrible. But again, it's just so weird that TSR had a comic book company and, and, and spent all of this money. They recruited comic book professionals. People moved from New York to LA to work for TSR on their comic books, and then it was all gone. Um, and they they were left with nothing but uh, but but balance sheets in the red um and uh again i had no i like I, I had vague recollections of it but i did not know the story the way it was told to me i didn't know like they, they went to war with dc comics essentially in order to do this uh they alienated dc comics and had nothing to show for it so that's probably the next most shocking thing to me i, I thought it was interesting that one one area that you didn't really go too deep on or or i can't even remember if it was really mentioned much more than a passing but was the dragon and dungeon magazines and the role that they played with tsr because i i have to assume for the most part that was a fairly stable um position in the company that that is accurate um as far like you the circulation numbers in dungeon and dragon had to be published once a year um in the magazine by law for some reason um so you can go and you can look at the subscribership it's pretty constant for both um neither was a was neither was a huge uh windfall for tsr but neither was a huge money sink either so 
I, I almost never talk about it just because it would have been, well, here's a bunch about Dungeon and Dragon, but it really didn't have anything to do with the collapse of the company because they did fine. <laughs> yeah. Were, were there I, other things that, that you had like researched or, or written up that maybe during the editorial process kind of got dropped away that you kind of wish was still in there? 12,000 words on third edition, but I'll just put that in the next book. <laughs> Very good. I, I, I got to assume then the next book, if you're, if you're willing to mention anything about it, has got to be, you know, what Wizards of the Coast did with the product and third edition. Is there going to be a big mention of Paizo and, and the, the so, rise of that? Or? Um, I'm thinking right now the through line for book two is going to be the open gaming license. Um, you're, you're stealing my questions ahead of time. Continue. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Like even before the recent kerfuffle, I was like, okay, you know, um, other people sit down and they're like, I'm just writing a history of Dungeons and Dragons. And I, I, I always am like, I have some sort of a question. Um, and when I was thinking about like Wizards of the Coast, I was like, the open gaming license has to be the, the framing question um, about the next 20 years of D&D. Because here, here Wizards of the Coast is doing this shocking, radical thing, essentially giving away their IP. Like, and how it worked out for Wizards is very complicated. Like, it's not a very clear-cut, like, uh, the OGL has clearly been a huge benefit for Wizards of the Coast. Now, I think it has been a huge benefit for Wizards of the Coast. But it certainly is not a simple story of, like, obviously this has been great. Um, so the OGL is my lens, and if the OGL is my lens, I have to talk about Paizo, I have to talk about some third-party publishers, um, Paizo being the most essential of them, just because they're the biggest. Um, even then, Paizo, I think, is probably a, a tenth the size of the D&D market. Yeah. Um, at, at this point in this time, essentially. I mean, yeah. at, at their height, obviously, you can make a different argument on that, but at this point in time, yeah, they've yeah. got to be. Yeah. Um, and uh again with the 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 recent scandal uh <laughs> suddenly the ogl has become very uh very hot very uh apropos so um i feel like for 17 years i didn't have much luck and now i feel like i, I keep getting lucky left right and center i need to start buying lottery tickets <laughs> um, the so at the end of your book um you know, the, the book takes us to the point where, where Wizards of the Coast has acquired the company and we get we, we see the we see the end of TSR. And Peter Atkinson is is kind of presented very much as a as a knight in shining armor, the, the hero of the story. He came in, he saved the company, um, and, and we are where we are today. I assume with you doing the research for book two and just mentioning the, the most recent kerfuffle, do you think that there is a difference between the Wizards of the Coast of the time when Peter ran the show and purchased the company to Wizards of the Coast today. Oh yeah. And and and, <laughs> and you know Hasbro essentially controlling the 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 IP. Is there because I, I think I think sometimes people don't really differentiate it, right? They they see Wizards of the Coast as a through line throughout and it's the same thing. And I, I think there is definitely eras of Wizards of the Coast that you know, depends on how much you want to vilify them. That's got to change a little bit along the way, right? So I would say a couple things. Um, I would say, number one, my sources tell me that you should now just consider Wizards of the Coast to be Hasbro. Right. Um, since the, the 
CEO of Hasbro is a former CEO of Wizards of the Coast. Like there's very little sunlight between those two organizations now. Um, from Peter's time, there's really almost no one left, um, especially not anyone in in power. Like Chris Perkins and Mike Merles had some 3.5 credits, I want to say. Um, I, th I think on the 3.5 core books, both Chris Perkins and Mike Merles did work. Um, Chris Perkins is still in the is he brand manager for D&D now. I'd have I'm, to not look sure, I'm not sure what his title is, yeah. but he he's yeah, he's on the creatives. He's one of the, the top yeah. folks yeah, on the he, creative side. Yeah. And he, he clearly is, uh, you know, D&D for life. That's, you know, which is yeah. fine. Um, Mike Merles is still at the company, but he's over in Magic the Gathering now. Um, and uh, so there's very little. Uh, and, oh, shoot, what's his name? Um, not Chris Lindsay, not Chris Perkins. Steve Winter. Um, Steve Winter, who was hired at TSR in like 1982, will still do work on the occasional D&D product. Um, but I think he might be the... He might have had the longest career in actual brand Dungeons and Dragons of anyone ever. Um, like he has to have, he has to be having his like 40th anniversary of writing D and D products around now. Um, so yeah, it's, it's fair to say that Wizards of the Coast is no longer what Peter Adkison made it. And um, again, a lot of that sunny-eyed West Coast optimism, we're going to do things differently, seems to have been replaced by uh, just, you know, corporate math. Um, I feel like I only half answered your question and I can't remember the other half of it. <laughs> well, it was, it was more about, you know, I, I guess to use a, use a phrase that history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. Was there mistakes that happened as, you know, you had, you had the initial era of TSR under Gary and then it moved into a larger buyout and owning by, by Williams. And then you've got it, the early days of being controlled by, by Peter and, and the Wizards of the Coast of that era, and now it's it's Hasbro. Is there is there mistakes that you saw from then that's kind of repeating now? Is there is there a parallel yes. that you could kind of draw through that? I, I would say that the core issue is a um, when the people making decisions about D and D are not really D and D gamers. Things get complicated. Two. Um, my, I, I am not a financial guy. I'm not a business guy. I do my best when I write about it and I make up for it in research. My understanding is Hasbro needs to be making more money. Um, mm -hmm. My understanding is there's a debt situation there. And uh, when people get in debt and suddenly need D&D to make more money for them, it seems to go poorly um, because role-playing games are a really weird business where people love them. They dedicate their lives to them. Uh, you know, they can be all consuming just like comic books or star Wars. And yet if you spend a hundred to 150 bucks on rule books, you could be good for the rest of your life. And what do we need wizards of the coast for? And, uh, at TSR, they were like, okay, we're going to monetize players by making fiction, just a pretty good idea. Uh, and we're going to monetize players by putting out books that we think players will like. And we got the, that complete guide to line of books, which was also pretty cool. Um, and uh, again, it's the idea that you want to monetize players 
by giving them good products is not really a terrible idea. Although, wh where do you go with it now? Like, are you going to really make the ultimate guide to fighters for fifth edition? You can do it. It's just been done so so many times. But I honestly think that um, the growth of D&D has not been driven by players. And the idea to monetize players, I think, is missing the boat. I think that what you want to do, if you want to make D&D the most successful it's ever been and make it and have it make more money than it's ever made before, what you want to do is make D&D ridiculously easy for a dungeon master to run. Ridiculously easy. That is your number one uh, task because you will encourage people to run the game. Uh, they will go and find five or six other people. Now, maybe only one or two of them buy a rule book. But you know what? They're more prone to go see that D&D movie. We have increased the value of your brand. Um, and I think that that is what D&D actually is, is. I think I might even be paraphrasing Ryan Dancy here. It's an attention engine. And it's a culture. And it's a community. And you can monetize that community by giving it cool stuff. Um, but the community will also rebel against you if it feels that it's being patronized or catered to or abused. Uh, because ultimately we don't need to buy anything else. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's like you, you said it really well in that once you've bought, I mean, in, in, in the OSR sphere, everybody likes to talk about, you know, what's the one book. If you're going to take that one book, you're stuck on a desert Island. What's the only book you're going to take? Oftentimes people are going to mention the rule cyclopedia. Um, everybody else has, has different ones. Rule cyclopedia, I think is a great choice. I would probably stick with, with BX. Uh, you know, it's, it's, two books, but I'm going to put them in the same binder. So it's all good. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's a, uh, and you can do that and play for the rest of your life and you don't need to buy anything else. I, I really do agree with you that you need to focus on, on the DMS because one thing I feel that's been kind of lost in the, the newest era of D and D is the having somebody take somebody and teach them how to play the game. Um, people are learning now instead of by watching a performance of the game, but they don't have, the next door neighbor saying, Hey, come over here. I got this cool thing. I need to show you. I'm gonna, we're going to sit down and we're going to learn it that way. Um, instead people are discovering it via a stream, which is a completely valid way of, of doing, it. I'm not knocking on streams, but it's a very different one. I think it produces a different expectation and a different uh, attachment to the game. Um, then, you know, having your next door neighbor or your buddy or your older sibling or what have you, um, teaching it to you in that way. And I, I, I mean, oh, I'm sorry. So I was gonna say, I've, I've heard all the reports of people saying, hey, there's a DM shortage uh, in, in 5e as well, um, which I think is, is to, its, to its downfall, although 5e arguably is the most successful version of, of the game that's ever been created. So um, maybe, maybe I'm just way off on that too. I, <laughs> but. I, I will tell you uh, what I have heard through back channels is that 3 million players' handbooks have been sold for 5e. If... Uh, that is true. Um, that means that there were more players' handbooks sold for 5e than if you took all of first edition and all of second edition and all of second edition revised and put them in one pile. There is more a bigger pile of all the fifth edition players' handbooks. The thing, the thing I want to know about the, the the one area of fifth edition players that I I'm curious about is what the drop-off rate is. 
um, you know, what is the the rate of, hey, I saw something cool on a Twitch stream or I, I heard of something neat. I went and I grabbed it because it's easy to, you know, go on Amazon, one click, you're done. You don't even need to go to a store. Um, and then how often after that is is it just forgotten about? Um, when, you know, oh, my favorite streams got away. They don't, they don't, they don't do their thing anymore. I've now moved on or I got tired or I don't have time to do this as opposed to, I don't want to, I don't want to say quote unquote true fans, but just, you know, so it, it feels like there's been a lot more retention with some of the older editions uh, of fans, or maybe it's just simply, maybe that's a, uh, you know, a survivor bias of looking back and saying, look at all these people from, from previous ones. And I don't, I'm not seeing the ones that dropped off either, but uh, I, I feel like there's a difference there and I don't know exactly how to word that properly, but. I don't know. I mean, the, there are four or five women under 30 at my school that play D and D and they're pretty ferocious about fifth edition. Um, and again, I've, I have no doubt that when they're 20 years from now, whatever edition of when they're, yeah. they're complaining about eighth edition, they're going to be like, well, fifth edition was the greatest edition of all time. I actually, I'll go, to, I'll go to war for second. I really like second edition. I, I had that exact conversation. Uh, when when the first rumblings of of six edition or or one D and D or D and D one or whatever it's called uh, started coming about, I was like, all these fifth edition players who have been kind of been like boohooing OSR players, saying, "Oh, give up the past. It's why are you hanging on to all this old stuff?" I'm like, "You wait, your time's coming. There will be more editions, and you will pine for what you had before." Uh, but um, we touched on on the OGL situation, and you you wrote a really cool article on Gizmodo um, a bit ago about this. What, what do you feel um, or how do you feel about how the, how it got leaked out and then the PR laundry machine that has been going on like crazy. Like I, I feel for, for Kyle Brinks, like he's got, he's got a job that I don't think anybody really wants right now trying to, to paper over all of this, but do, do you feel, or from the people that you've talked to, and I don't want to scoop on your book, but is the is the view that most of us have of, of like you guys are lying through your teeth? This is what you're actually trying to do versus what Kyle is now going out and and trying to say, oh no, it was a mistake. I we didn't know. <laughs> like, what's your view on all of that? I, I think there's a couple things. I think um, one is that Wizards of the Coast is is not a monolith. Um, even though I am like, you know, there's no space between them, them and Hasbro. Um, like uh, when, when Kyle is talking about his experience with the OGL debacle, he says that the day that that awful patronizing press release came out, that was like, we all won. That was the day he was like, I need to step up and take a, a bigger role here. <laughs> you know, Um and uh, again, I, I will tell you that confidential sources have told me that higher ups at Wizards really looked at a lot of third party Kickstarters and they, they were like, that's our money. That's our money that is on the table and we need to get that money. Um, which again, if, if you have a business background um, and you're like, why did we give away our intellectual property? It's not it's not a crazy instinct. It's not a good one for our community and it's not a good one for the brand. Um, but if, if you're an MBA, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
and I like I I do wish that they just came out and kind of said that um, because it, it did force Kyle to say a lot of things that just didn't make a ton of didn't make a ton of sense. Again, I I don't find that PR or marketing is typically you know, the dark art of lying. It's the art of massaging. <laughs> <laughs> it's mar it's and, the art of framing things of yeah, and, and, <laughs> and shining light and water on certain truths and trying to make sure others withered. Yeah. And I would tell you that what I've taken, I, I am doing research on this now. Again, I don't know that my book is actually going to cover it in any great depth, but I'm, I've got another article, I think, that'll be coming out in a couple weeks where I went and I talked. Because like a, a big part of the story is Kyle saying, this is what we did with the third-party publishers. And I was like, oh, really? I'm just going to go talk to some third-party publishers and see what they'll say. Um, and they were pretty frank. Um, they did sign NDAs, so they were very concerned about uh, making sure that they did not step on those NDAs because nobody wants an NDA fight with wizards. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there were... Again, I, I wrote an article about this, so I don't want to say too much because in the article I I was very careful about because people would people would move on and off the record. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I shouldn't say that because of the NDA. Um, and again, some of it was very anodyne stuff. Like, you know, I don't want to say wh what restaurant we ate at because of the NDA. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. Well, because um, that would that would identify who they are, right? Like it's yeah. it's it's people trying to make sure that there is no way of of. I mean, there was there was even I remember people being concerned about well, why aren't more people leaking the contracts out? And they were saying, well, because the contracts might not be the same, identical between each of these different publishers, right? So nobody wanted to leak in case in case uh, there was something identifying identifiable in the language. Well, and uh, again, like I think that um, I I don't know who leaked the initial contract. But I would almost for sure guarantee it was someone under the age of 30. Um, <laughs> that, that is the only prediction I would make about who leaked the contract. Because, uh, again, I just don't think if you own a multi-million dollar corporation, uh, you're, you're not going to risk all of that on a public fight with wizards. Furthermore, like every corporation I spoke to about their negotiations with wizards kept those contracts to a very small number of people. Um, and again, I've, now I've, I've heard a lot of accusations, you know, about who did it, but that's the only one I'm comfortable putting any sort of like, <laughs> yeah, I'd put, I'd put money on that. It's someone under 30. <laughs> so in, going back to the whole, like history doesn't repeat, but it definitely rhymes. If, if you were to, if you were a, a betting person or a guessing person, and you're looking at at what's happened here, and you saw the you, as as you're going through your own research, you saw the rise of Paizo and the decline of 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 uh, Wizards of Coast D, branded D and D during the fourth edition era, and we're kind of in this here now. And there was a lot of people saying, "Hey, the trust and everything that's been kind of spooked up by by this." And you're seeing you know, Paizo. I bet you Paizo sold more books in the first quarter of this year than they have in the last two years. Uh, Cobalt Press is doing their own, their thing. Do you think we're kind of primed for a, maybe not a full scale re repeat, but maybe a, a, a similar type trajectory change? Or is this something that you think they're going to be able to come ride out of and, and come back uh, with everybody forgetting about this in the quarter? 
it's really hard to follow like follow up a good edition of D D. It's yeah. really hard. Um like the the thing I've been told about fourth edition so far is that uh Oh your video your video frozen and we've lost the audio so i'm going to fill in the gap here a little bit while we wait to see if it reconnects oh you're moving again check one two check one two can you hear me yep sorry that's okay um your question was do you essentially do you think that the next edition is going to lead to a rise of a third party challenge to dnd essentially yeah yeah I, I think it's really hard to come after a good edition of dnd um, the fourth edition designers, the story they're kind of telling me so far is that they were handcuffed by upper management and business people telling them what the game was supposed to be. Um, and that like a lot of the bad decisions were not made by them and were forced on them. Now I now have to go and interview those people who like, and well, I, I it, it, it wasn't me. It was my boss. I was a crazy exactly. genius. So it's the yeah. same as the first book, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll chase down the boss and be like, hey, boss, like, you know, is that true? And hopefully they'll talk to me. Um, fifth edition, I think, is probably uh, the D&D primed to be the most popular game it can be in the 21st century. I think that I would not want to be the person tasked with, with doing the next thing. Um, I think it was really smart when they were like, one D&D is not a new edition. It's like the final form of fifth edition. I mean, that that's good marketing. If, th if that's true, may maybe they've learned and they're like, okay, this is just like an update for fifth edition and the core is really going to be the same. And you can kind of see that happening. Um, and if, if the, I think if they tread lightly um, and don't make so many changes that the, and again they said it's going to be backwards compatible um but i'm trying to think like uh call of cthulhu is a good a, a example here the seventh edition of call of cthulhu is really really good um but it was also designed so that you can pick up any 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 call of cthulhu supplement ever and you can run it with the seventh edition rules if that is what the next edition of D&D is going to be, it's going to be so backwards compatible that you can run any 5th edition product with it, and it just buffs a few things and changes a few things. Again, um, you know, one thing I heard someone object to was uh, you, you, the 8-hour rest rule was broken and everyone's just napping in dungeons and, you know, that needs to be fixed. Maybe they fix that and you're like, oh, it is legitimately a better game. I think that wouldn't present an opportunity for a new Paizo to emerge. Um, if, however, it is very different and bad, <laughs> yeah, it could happen. That's a, that's a little unfair because that, that infers that, you know, fourth edition, I don't think was bad. It was just... I, I think, yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think it was so much that it was bad. It was, it was a shift of what people wanted to do. And I wonder if rather than being from a rule standpoint the the mistake possibly or maybe it'll be the boon but possibly the mistake with with this will be that it's the plan to make it as as digital as possible the the you know let's make this as much as we can bound to D, &D beyond um i wonder if that will be the the negative or the downfall of it as opposed to the rule set itself um 
I, I think that because for all the reasons you just said, you know, they've they've been very public saying they want to make it backwards compatible. I really question how much they can do that if they still actually want to sell new books. Because uh, I mean, let's be honest, ninety percent of the time that you're putting out a new edition is because you want to sell more players' hands books. And if it's the exact same player's handbook, who's going to buy it, right? But um, I, I wonder if it's if if the potential Achilles heel may be the digital side of it. Although, you know, most of us are playing our games online and what have you now. Yeah, could could be. I mean, I think the problem is they they didn't get there first, and yeah. that we already have digital tools doing it. So now you're convincing us to leave our current digital tools. And again, may, maybe what they make is so cool and so hot that we all run to give them $10 a month. And I would be <laughs> happy with that. Again, like I, I do not per se, I'm not sitting here being like all digital tools for D and D are bad. I'm just like, well, if you're going to try and force bad ones down our throat in some way, uh, that's not going to go great. But uh, again, they, I would hope, that their plan is again, we're just going to make such a shit hot virtual tabletop uh, that you have to come get it. I just, I don't know. Like I can't think of a time when someone has been like an also ran like, Oh my God, Facebook's a hit. I'm going to make the next Facebook and just do what Facebook does better. Never seems to matter. People will endure the, the badness of the thing they know rather than bothering to learn a new thing that does the same thing better. Um, so I, I would tell them, I don't know that that's a winning strategy. I think you're going to spend a ton of money for not much success. Um, I think that, <laughs> again, if I had their ear, I would tell them, okay, uh, you should put out 12 free adventures for D&D. Uh, they should be amazing. Uh, and you should hire amazing designers with amazing uh, graphic artists, plus some layout people from the OSR. And they should be free and watch what happens to your sales. Uh, and you should have maps that come with them. They should all be printable maps that are in full color or black and white. And you, you put out an advertising campaign in support of these free products and watch what happens. Because I, I think that is actually where their money is and how and and you you make virtual tabletop support for all of them for the foundry and roll 20 and all this stuff that already exists um i'm really interested to see what they do for the 50th anniversary like is is are they going to acknowledge the past and celebrate the past or will it always will it be all forward facing and i think they could especially after the OGL situation, I think they could win a bunch of goodwill back if they were able to properly acknowledge and celebrate the past as well as the, as the future on it. Um, I, I'm interested to see what they do with that. Uh, I'm not expecting much. Uh, and in the end, it overly doesn't matter to me whether they themselves do, but I think it would be a good um, a good move on their part to, to do that, to acknowledge and celebrate the past. Um, with that and not and not in the way that they that they have taken heat for celebrating the past in the, in the past like with the thaco clown thing and all that <laughs> i mean doing it in a in a respectful and and proper way maybe a little better well again it's so uh curious that um D &D is fundamentally the creation of uh 
people rejected by American society in almost every way they could be. Gary Gygax was unemployed. He was a religious minority, a, a member of a very weird religion. Uh, but still, I'm sure he felt like uh, he, he was cut out of the religious life of America. He was cut out of the economic life of America. He's living in a uh, resort town that eight months out of the year is economically dead. His, he's feeding his children welfare cheese. And Ernie Gygax is putting cardboard in his shoes because there's holes in them. Um, and, you know, that guy uh, creates this game that with Dave Arneson, of course, who has a similar story. Um, but it's radical, revolutionary, new. It's a new medium. It's like acting was invented in 1974 in Wisconsin. And here we are 50 years later, and it has gone from, you know, a, a Lake Geneva basement to East Coast and West Coast corporate boardrooms of billion-dollar corporations. And you have MBAs um, trying to figure out what to do with this game. And I would certainly say that the most successful moments have been when those MBAs are huge D&D nerds. Um, so again, I, you know, I, I certainly have concerns about the future of the game. I don't know that Wizards knows what to do with it. I think that Wizards had a plan, but the OGL debacle has to have put everything on hold. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Again, they're clearly, they know they have a problem. That's why they're flying all these influencers out to their headquarters on April 3rd, which is, again, not a bad idea. And again, Kyle Brink, I don't think he's doing a terrible job trying to put lipstick on this pig. You know, clearly there are still good people there, but uh, I'm going to buy an uh, extra 5th edition player's handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, and uh, Monster's Manual before all of this goes to hell, because I'm like, eh, I think it'll be worth something someday. You know, not, so not lot, enough to retire on, but... Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of them out there, but it'll be a nice little artifact. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I got a couple of last questions for you. Go for it. So, one, of all the people that you talk to through all that, through all the research and the emails and the, I'm sure, video conferences like this one, who is who is the character that most sticks out in your mind where you're like, I would love to sit down and have a beer with this person? Like, if, uh, I, if I got a chance to sit down and just chill out and chat with this person. Who was the character that, that stood out to you the most that way? I'm going to go Flint Dilly. Oh, really? Oh, we're, yeah. We're going to California. Oh, yeah. Flint Dilly. Uh, Lorraine's brother. Uh, he, he has been hired by both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg to write wrote American Tale 2, American Tale 2, Five Hill Goes West. Um, he is a character. He is, he is larger than life. He, <laughs> he said... Um, when I sent him a draft of my book, he said, I see what you did. You made me into a character. I'm like, I didn't need to do anything. I just needed to describe you and, and list what you said. And you become that character, sir. Like, your best friend is Frank Miller. You know, Flint from G.I. Joe is apparently named after you. A the narrator character from 300 is apparently named after you. The, 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 the guy in 300 even looks like you in the drawings of, of Frank Miller. Like, you know, that's got a, uh, just a fascinating dude. The next question I got for you is much like what we're doing right now. You've had a podcast plot points. 
it's on hiatus is it? or is it is, is it coming back is there new episodes of I, i'm right pleased now? to say i got an episode up 10 days ago oh okay <laughs> first one since july so I'm, I'm hoping to get back on a regular like eh, two or three episodes a month uh uh kick right now uh i'm reading the dungeon master's guide aloud with a guy who's going to essentially get a doctorate in appendix n from the university of wisconsin milwaukee <laughs> uh in the spring uh so you know and i've never read it before i know a lot about the production of the first edition dmg uh, and uh, a lot of what was going on at tsr at the time and he knows a lot about the influences of it uh so it's it's a fun time. We're, I think we have literally 24 hours of us of reading the Dungeon Master's Guide Lab. We're averaging like a, a page an hour because of all the discussion. So hopefully people find that interesting and and come check it out if you uh, haven't listened to it. Plot points. Awesome. Yeah, it's going through and um, deciphering high Gygax at a time can, can oh, be can, can be fun. <laughs> but um, and my last question for you is. You've obviously, you know, you've done the, the the press tour for for the book, and you've done your own podcasts, and uh, you you have people asking you questions all the time. What is something that I haven't asked you, or that you don't get asked about enough that you wish somebody would like? What's something that I should have asked you about that would have been a cool thing to hear about that I didn't ask? Or what are things that you wish people would talk about more that you do or that you're involved in that just nobody ever brings up? Good question. This has been a pretty good interview, so. Uh... And I, I'm struggling actually to come up with an answer. Um, um, or if 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 I've totally stumped you and, and blindsided you like I do with a lot of people, feel free just to go off on something about you that people don't normally know about. <laughs> see, I, I taught in Egypt for a year. I was able to see the pyramids from my classroom. Um, so what's what's your theory on how they were built? I think the accepted theory makes the most sense. You so know, aliens. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go no on that one. <laughs> but uh, what do I wish people? Uh, I guess I will quickly throw out there um, that uh, one of the fascinating things about the D and D hobby. If, if Wizards of the Coast marketing is to be is to be believed, is that uh, it is almost perfectly evenly spread across demographics. Something like a quarter of the players are under eighteen, a quarter are like eighteen to forty, another quarter are uh, forty to sixty, and then I think there's even another twenty. And again, I'm, I'm making these numbers up, but yeah, like it, I can't think of almost anything in america that has that even a spread of demographics um i want to say it's almost perfectly balanced by gender now um it keeps getting more racially diverse uh and in a time when it seems like new technology is constantly tugging at us and pulling us away from each other dnd seems to be one of the few things that's actually bringing us together um and whenever someone gets into D and D, oh my God, they you know if they play it for a year, they'll play it for life. Uh, it, it bonds you with people. I recently started playing three point five with four men in their forties and uh, two women under thirty, and none of us. I, I played a little three point five, but I'm running it because of my book. I'm like, okay, I'll run three point five because I have to run three point five because I need to know it for my book, and when uh the, the first time i had women under 30 at the table 
it was a bit like a uh, middle school dance. Where yeah, <laughs> they all stayed on one side. And you guys, yeah, those of us who are male in our forties are kind of like, what, what do we do? You know, what do we say to the, to the women under 30? And again, we're all attached. It's not like this is a dating situation. Uh, but two or three sessions in, suddenly everybody's talking. Everybody's comfortable. There's already inside jokes. Um, and, you know, these people from another generation that maybe we only have D&D in common, but suddenly we have something in common that we can talk about, and there's a little community that forms. Um, and I would say that that is a, a remarkable thing about the hobby of Dungeons & Dragons in the 21st century. That's. I think that's a an awesome point to call it. I, I think also... And and I don't I would say definitely it wasn't as as even of a demographic spread as as what Wizards is saying it is now. But even back, I I know D and D from from eighty seventies eighties era gets looked at as like it was all just old white guy or now old white guys that were playing in the basement. But it was a much more diverse diverse game than it gets credit for as well. Um, and I think that needs to be reminded to folks as well as that when people were playing. You you couldn't be picky about who you were playing with. <laughs> so, so you took all covers because it was like you said before. It was it was the it was a game of you know the the not necessarily the most financially secure or the most popular people that were playing at a, at a given point in time. It was it was an escapism that you know if you found other people that enjoyed it, you you took all comers and you know whatever demographic they happened to hail from. Nobody seemed to really bat an eye, um, and I think that gets lost a little bit. I think everybody assumes maybe again, because of survivor bias, the people that are still talking about the game from that era, maybe are more predominantly old white guys that have big beards. But um, I don't think that was necessarily exactly always the player base. either. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting about this. I, I really love the book. I thought it was fantastic. Um, where can people go and find all the things like plot points, um, your other writings, the book, where should they go to find all of that? Oh, um, what a good question. So uh, the book should be available at your if you are in North America at your local bookstore, on Amazon, uh, pretty much anywhere you would go to find a book. It should be available, maybe even your gaming store. I know a few hundred at least were sold into the hobby trade, so you might find it there. Um, also, Kindle and Audible. If you're in the UK, it is, uh, or in Ireland, um, it is on... Uh, Kindle, so you can at least get a reasonably priced digital copy if you're in the UK. Um, plot points, uh, you can listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music. Uh, pro I believe we're on almost every podcast app. Failing that, uh, we're at plotpoints.libson.com. Uh, maybe I'm ready for Gizmodo now. Um, at least I have one <laughs> article up on Gizmodo. Yeah, um, I was going. I was going to ask you too. How how did the do you still do you still write for Geek and Sundry? Although I guess Geek and Sundry is now Nerdist. Or yeah, so all my stuff that used to be on Geek and Sundry is now on Nerdist, which sounds more impressive anyway. Um, <laughs> so I'm fine with <clears throat> I'm fine with that. Um, when I uh, when I have things I can't manage to sell, they'll be on writerbenriggs.com. For example, I uh, but four months ago. I went over Dave Arneson's letters to Peter Atkinson begging to be given a job running D and D. I've heard um, about those. I, I I haven't read all. I've I've read I think like the first first letter and then the follow up letter or something. I'm not sure if there was more than that, but yeah, that, it was just that, the two, just those sad two, unfortunately. Yeah, that that's um, that, that sounded just 
yeah, sad. I think yeah. it's the best way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. So writer Ben Riggs, you'll see things very occasionally, like less than once a month. And then again, my, my problem is, you know, there's limited, I have a two-year-old, I have limited full-time job, limited writing time. And it's like book article. What should I do? I don't know. Um, <laughs> So I guess Google me if you really want to hunt things that I wrote down. You should be able to find some things. Um, Good stuff. I'll I'll include links to all those in the description of the of the, of the episode, obviously. Um, and yeah, I, uh, definitely go read if you're interested with the OGL, the Gizmodo article. Um, and we didn't even talk about Encounter Theory, but you had that's another product you've got out there as well that people should go and check out. Um, teach you how to to make better adventures. Um, but yeah, Ben, thanks so much for coming on. I look forward to the book. Do you have is there is there a working title for the for, for book two? <laughs> I'm calling it right now. And he, heaven forbid if this sticks, but uh <laughs> slaying the dragon two, the descaling. Oh wow, yeah, that's not gonna fly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the publisher isn't gonna allow that. Sandy Peterson told me you should never give a pub, a work a funny title just in case it actually sticks. So I should really stop calling it that. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, folks, I'm going to send us the future me to do any editing that we need to do. But uh, Ben, thanks so much for coming on chatting with me. My pleasure. Thank you for tolerating my lateness and technical issues. Not a problem. So you have a good night. All right, folks, that's going to wrap up this episode of the Red Caps podcast. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed. Thank you for coming back and listening after a little bit of a break. I really enjoyed my vacation and it was nice to get away. It's now nice to be back. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed. You learned something and that you were eager to come back for more. www.theredcaps.net has all the links to all the ways to contact me and I would love to hear from you. Thank you ever so much for listening. And remember, never let your caps dry out. Stay safe, have fun. We'll talk again soon.